a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this story, the account of your love displayed to us through your servants, Ruth and Boaz. Lord, I pray for your help as I preach, and I pray for each one of us this morning that you would help us to trust in you above all. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for a while there, I swore off references to the Lord of the Rings, but it's been over a year, so I'm going to use one this morning. I promise not to abuse it, though, every week now. Um, I, I spent way too long this weekend trying to find in the book the scene I'm picturing so clearly from the movie. I just don't think it's in there. But in the first of the stories, you've got Gandalf the wizard coming to visit the hobbits, and he's coming for a birthday party, and Frodo, who's one of the main characters of the story and a hobbit, um, greets him on the outskirts of town and says in an incredulous tone, you're late. And Gandalf pretends to be angry or irritated with this and says, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is he early. He arrives precisely as he intends to. Now, I share that because... um, God is like that. He's never early. He's never late. He's always on time. He's always on his perfect timing. And for us, there is a temptation when the timing seems wrong to grab control of things and try to force our will or try to inflict our ideas on what should happen. We try to force God's hand. I know this saying didn't originate with Ben Franklin, but he probably made it most famous through his almanac. You've heard the expression, God helps he who helps himself. In fact, people that don't know the Bible very well are often tripped up when that is on a list of Bible verses and they're asked to identify. It's not in the Bible, um, nor should it be. Although it commends you for taking initiative. It doesn't, uh, it's not a bad thing to, to take action, to be action-oriented. It's a bad thing to presume on the Lord and to exert your will where he's not leading. And so this morning, I want to suggest to us that trusting in God is better than acting for him. I mentioned in a prior sermon that the Lord moved me out of engineering when I was in Chicago to the city of Pittsburgh, but I didn't tell you that I had tried to force the Lord to call me. Notice those words. I had tried to force the Lord to call me to Raleigh, North Carolina. There was a a branch of my company there, and I had put in a transfer request, and I asked the vice president of our branch if if I could be transferred to Raleigh to do engineering work there. Uh, And he said, no, they don't need engineers. Um, at this time. And so I decided to book some airplane tickets and fly down there. And we went and had a tour of the city and uh, visited around. And I arranged to talk to the person that was in charge of the office there. And uh, guess what? They didn't need engineers at that time. (laughs) But you know what? Um, I mean, we had a nice visit. And aside from the cost of an airplane ticket, no harm was done. But there could have been damage. I mean, I could have been fired for that. I, I disregarded the vice president of my, my section and tried to force it to happen in my own will. And I think it's tempting at times when the timing in a situation isn't progressing like we want it to. We try, we're tempted to grab control and force it, force the thing to happen. I remember hearing Bill Hybels, who started the big Willow Creek megachurch in Chicago, talk about how when they were first getting started, they were having trouble getting financing for his ministry, and he convinced his entire staff to max out all of their credit cards to get funding to start the ministry. And this was years later after it had, you know, they had been successful, but he, he repented of that and said it was impulsive and foolish, 
But God in his mercy spared them, and the church did grow, and they were able to pay off that debt, and they were able to recover. But that is not a good way uh, to get financing. It's the worst possible interest rate, and they weren't waiting for the Lord. They were getting ahead of things. Now, I think that's what's actually happening here in Ruth chapter 3. It's on page 223 in a pew Bible if you want to follow along. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that Naomi is acting in the place of God. She's taking control of the situation to force something to happen, and she does not do it in a wise way. And the reason I say this is verse 1. Ruth 3 verse 1 says, Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now think for a minute. Who is it that provides rest? Who is it that provides wellness for us? It's certainly not Naomi. That's the Lord's role. Jesus said, come to me if you need rest, and I will give you rest for your soul. And Naomi is stepping into the place saying, should I not provide this for you? It's a rhetorical question, of course, and she's basically saying, I've got a plan. Here's what we're going to do. And then she asserts her plan on her daughter-in-law. I I noticed also in the New Testament that Jesus taught his disciples and those that heard him in the Sermon on the Mount not to worry obsessively about provision, about clothing and food, but to seek first the kingdom of God, trusting that your heavenly Father will then provide those things as well. But you seek first the kingdom and let God take care of that stuff. And I think right here we've got Naomi trying to take care of herself and her daughter-in-law and not seeking God first. One of the things I love about narratives is that it just tells you what they do and say. It doesn't necessarily tell you the motives. Now, sometimes the narrator will jump in and will tell you why somebody does something. But here, you have to speculate. And I'm speculating on Naomi's motives for this. I think she's taking control of something she shouldn't be taking control of. And when you read her plan, it sounds like she's read a trashy novel about three steps to getting a husband. Just follow this plan and you can get him to propose. How to get him to give you a ring or something. I mean, it's a terrible plan. And scholars have tried to clean this up because it's pretty scandalous. And they've tried to explain certain details away with Hebrew words or suggest there's some custom to this, but there's not. I mean, it just doesn't look good. And listen to what Sinclair Ferguson, who's a, a scholar and wrote a commentary on this, says. Regardless of what the scholars might have said about what was happening here, it's just obviously not good. And Sinclair says this, is she really telling her daughter-in-law to perfume herself, put on her most attractive clothes, go down to the threshing floor in the middle of the night, lie beside a man to whom she's not married, and wait to see what happens? (laughs) It's not a good plan. (laughs) What could possibly happen in that situation? In one of the churches where I was a student, pastor, a youth pastor, um, we had cell groups that were student-led Bible studies, and we had a group of leaders, students that were those leaders. And one of them had to be removed from leadership because she went to a party at a hotel where they were drinking, and it was a huge thing, and a lot of people knew about it. And we asked her to step down from serving as a small group leader because we said, you signed a covenant, you agreed that you're going to represent Christ to your high school. Like 40 people saw you at this party drinking in a hotel underage, this is not good. You, you can't keep leading. And she understood, but her mom didn't. And her mom stormed into the church and was furious with us and demanded that she be reinstated. And then her reason was this. She said, these kids are just so anxious about dating. It's just, they need to have their inhibitions lowered a little bit. And sometimes alcohol can help. And I, 
I was flabbergasted. I couldn't believe, I, I thought, this is a terrible idea. What are you suggesting? What could possibly happen? You know, it's just not smart. It's not wise. And I don't have to pull up the stats about how alcohol is connected to sexual sin or abuse or violence. Um, they often go hand in hand. Somebody once said to me, nothing good happens after midnight. And there's some wisdom in that. What really are you trying to do after midnight? It can't possibly be good. So this plan that Naomi lays out for Ruth is either it's dangerous at worst and it's foolish at best. In the prophets, Hosea 9.1 uses this little phrase, which tells you something about what happens on these threshing floors. Quote, a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Hosea 9.1 says that. So let me describe the situation of what a threshing floor was, because we, you know, I'm guessing most of us, if not all of us, are not into threshing grain these days. But the harvest goes on for barley for six or so weeks, and they gather all that they've cut out of the field over into a threshing floor, which has a hard floor, and they find a place where there would be good evening winds. That's why they do it in the evening, because the sun starts setting, that evening breeze blows through, and they take pitchforks, and they throw it up in the air, and the chaff is blown away, and the heavier grains fall on the floor, and they collect it up and put it in piles. So they obviously are doing this outside of the city because it doesn't have walls blocking the wind, and they're doing it in the evening, and they're doing it at the end of the harvest, which often meant a party. They were celebrating. So there's wine, there's food, and there's a bunch of these workers with a big pile of grain. And so they have to stay out there because people could come and steal it, or animals could come in and try and eat it. And so you've got a bunch of festive, late-night workers that have been harvesting for five or six or seven weeks guarding their grain and sleeping kind of peacefully. I mean, it says Boaz was merrily resting after he had, he had feasted. And so you could imagine why this would be a place that uh, a prostitute might go looking for a customer, right? So th there's a tough situation here. Now, nothing in the story suggests that Boaz lacks character. In fact, nothing suggests that Ruth does either. And I think what we've got are two honorable people in a sticky situation. There are a number of could-haves. What could have happened? Well, remember in chapter 2, Naomi, in concern for Ruth, says, stick close by his women as you glean so that you're not assaulted in the field. If she was concerned in the field during daytime that she could be assaulted, what could possibly happen sneaking at nighttime, hiding out until they all go to sleep. She's, so she's in the darkness somewhere. She could have easily been attacked there. That's not a good thing. Boaz could have made a foolish decision in the middle of the night. Maybe he did have too much wine, although nothing suggests that, but then not proposed. I think probably the greatest risk is that he would have lost respect for her. He praised her for being a woman, woman of character, that she cared for Naomi her mother-in-law, that she chose to leave her homeland to stay in this relationship and to worship Yahweh, and she worked hard, he praised her for being this kind of woman. And now her reputation is being tarnished by her behavior following her mother-in-law's advice. It just doesn't look good. Furthermore, and we'll see next week how Boaz re reacts, but one of the things he's concerned about is that no one tell anyone that a woman visited him. He doesn't want word to get out to the town of Bethlehem about this, because if he does marry her, it's going to make it that much harder for her to be accepted in that small town. And you know how rumors go, and so he's trying to protect that. Now, there's one detail in here that tells me that Ruth was really uncomfortable. If you look at verse 9, you know, the, the plan, of course, is uncover his feet after he falls asleep and lay down. 
And then that's to make him uncomfortable. So at some point he will wake up and then there'll be an, an exchange. And, and her instructions were, listen to what he tells you. He'll tell you what to do then. But that's not what Ruth does. So look at verse 9. Um, it says, uh, uh, I'll start with 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That last bit wasn't part of the plan. She was supposed to just let him tell her what to do. But what she's doing here is she's actually making a marriage proposal. And she's referencing back the prayer and blessing of chapter 2, verse 12, that Boaz specifically said. Boaz said this back there, The Lord repay you, Ruth, for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She's saying, Boaz, let your wings be the ones that the Lord provides refuge for me through. And this idea of the wings covering a woman was it spoke of marriage uh, under the protection of the household. And so the, everybody in this day would have understood what was happening here. She was very clear, I want you to marry me. And she wasn't going to wait until he said what to do. I'm guessing she was laying there in the middle of the night thinking, oh, this is a bad idea. This was a bad idea. I don't know how to get myself out of this situation. And so as soon as he said, who are you? She blurted out, I'm Ruth, your servant. Marry me. <laughs> Lest there be any confusion of what her intentions were. Uh, you and I now can think of a number of better ways to, to go about this. It was, a, it was socially a number of uh, inequalities. She's a foreigner asking an Israelite. She's a woman asking a man. She's a younger woman asking an elder of the town. I'm guessing... 45 to 25 in age, something like that. Um, she's poor and he's rich and she's working the fields and he's the owner. She's the boss. He's the boss. And she goes with this plan, which is not a good one. Now, I would suggest to you and to myself that if we're in a, in a similar situation of sorts where we're not sure what the direction is, to ask the Lord for guidance. Lord, how could I go about this? And he'll provide. He'll show a way. He will make a way in his timing, in his way. And I think she's just, rather than trusting in the Lord, um, Naomi is acting for the Lord, and then Ruth starts to go along with that plan. Trusting in the Lord is better than acting for the Lord. Now, I mentioned the timing of the Lord of the Rings, that idea of never late, never early. I marvel when I look at Jesus's way that he navigated his earthly ministry, where at any time he could have gotten ahead of course, where he could have been in the crowds and made to be king by force and, and not had it go the father's way. But he was constantly paying attention to his father. And he's the son of God. He lived his life listening in submission to his father. John's gospel in particular has a number of instances that show he was, Jesus was very aware of God's timing on things. In John chapter 2, he's at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. They run out of wine, and it's a week-long event. And so his mother comes to him and says, do something. You know what his response was? My hour has not yet come. He didn't want to be publicly known yet, but he does honor his mother in that situation. And John tells us it's the first of his signs where he revealed his glory. And his disciples saw it and some of the servants at that wedding. But he was very clear that my time isn't yet there to be publicly on display. 
His brothers come to him in John chapter, I think it's seven, and say, you want to be a public figure, huh? You're speaking to the crowds. Come up with us to the festival. There was a festival in Jerusalem, and he says to them, your hour is any time, but my hour is not yet come. And they go on without him, and then he sneaks up towards the last day of the festival and then makes a public statement uh, to all the crowds that were wondering and were waiting for him. He was listening to his father's guidance on how to move forward and when to move forward. I marvel too at the story when he heals or he raises Lazarus out of the grave. He gets word that his friend Lazarus is sick. And it says, and when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer where he was. It sticks out kind of awkwardly in there. And I think, huh, the guy that's been healing all the sick hears that his, one of his good friends is sick. Why doesn't he rush over there and heal him? Well, because God was actually going to do something incredible. And he was listening to the Father and the timing, and Jesus was going to go and show that in him is life. So Jesus waits until he's fully dead, and then he goes and raises him. This was his seventh and greatest sign in John's gospel. And many put their faith in Jesus because of Lazarus's testimony. And then his enemies, of course, tried to kill both Lazarus and Jesus. But that was getting towards the end of his earthly ministry. There was a timeline on that. God had a plan. He had a time that he had sorted out. He knew what he was doing. And Jesus was listening, and he was tracking, and he was going along on the right time. As our Savior, he was modeling. He was modeling how, how to do this. Now, is there a situation, I wonder, in your life where you're tempted to force your will because you're growing impatient like Naomi was? You're tempted to just grab control and do something to make it happen. Well, here's a couple of thoughts from Ruth chapter 3 that you could maybe learn from. One, God's plans cannot be thwarted or forced by our exertions. You can't thwart and stop his plans, and nor can you force them to happen. That's, we don't have the power to do that. But we can hurt ourselves by trying to do that. So that could have gone really, really poorly on the threshing floor. But God in his mercy spared them in this story. But there are other stories where that doesn't happen, where things do go wrong because we're acting in our own ideas. A second thing is that God still uses sinners like you and me to accomplish his purposes. Someone once said to me, the good news is Jesus is building his church. The bad news is we're the best he's got to work with. <laughs> There's truth in that. And that's where God shows his mercy and his kindness. And, and he comes alongside and helps us. Trusting in God is better than acting for him. I heard a story this week of somebody who's um, family was in a situation where the son-in-law and daughter and new baby were trying to get a lease in a certain apartment, and uh, he had gotten a new job over there, and the lease was having a problem, and it wasn't coming through, and they ended up not getting that apartment, and they were very frustrated. And then a little while after that, it turns out that there was a problem with his application, and he didn't qualify for that job and didn't get the job. He would have been signed into a 12-month lease in a part of town where he's not going to work if he had forced it. And he was very frustrated at first that it wasn't coming through. And then later, with the, the vantage point of after the fact, he looked back and actually praised God and said, ah, God was looking out for us here, spared us getting into a lease for 12 months in the wrong part of town for a job that I wasn't ultimately going to get. That's one of the reasons God is so trustworthy. He's all-knowing. He knows the future, and so he can guide you through the present. That's so helpful for us. I want to close this morning with a proverb that probably many of you have committed to heart. Proverbs 3, 5 is really helpful. It tells us this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's so tempting for us to grow frustrated with your timeline and to try to exert our will on situations. I pray that you would give us the faith to trust you. Lord, teach us to seek you for the plan. Teach us to listen. Help us to hear your voice in these times. And forgive us for when we force ourselves into situations where you would not have us go. Again, I'm grateful for the account of Ruth and Boaz. Thank you for this story and the way that it encourages us. And overall, Lord, the way that it shows us how great you are. We praise you, Lord. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We invite you now.